Hello listeners, Jacqueline here. Uh, Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to give you a heads up that this was previously recorded live inside of our private Facebook group, which you may already be a member of. If not, you can join. There's a link in the show notes. And we wanted to share this with you because we had so much fun with it. It's one of our favorite tape musicians. And just give you a little disclaimer that you may hear us, you know, talking to people who were part of the live chat um, or referencing things that happened, you know, around the time that we recorded this. Uh, One of those being a performance that we talk about doing. So just know that that is not something that's going to happen this week. It is something that happened in the past. And there will be a link in the show notes to that live performance that we did if you are interested in watching it. All right, let's get to the show. We have had so much fun this week talking about Raymond Scott and getting to dispel some rumors and tie some threads together. I think uh, the fun one for me was uh, remembering or being reminded that uh, John Williams was the drummer of the Raymond Scott Quintet. So, you know, there's always some kind of gems to uncover with all of these people that we have these conversations about uh there's always something surprising and cool well i I had mentioned it as a question uh during the last conversation because i'm almost positive it was in the documentary it yeah it had to have been because that's that was my primary source of information at the time and um yeah we found out that that is definitely true yeah so thanks to everyone in the group for participating in that fun investigation this week on Raymond Scott, and um, you know, we had the pleasure of Jeff Winter joining us, um, the archivist for Raymond Scott, to help us uh, get everything straight. Uh, I mean, he's got all kinds of things going on. He, yeah. He's produced um, almost all of the reissues of his work on Basta, and uh, he's co produced the documentary. and. Yeah, that was a, a um, real, real honor to have him uh, sharing all his knowledge with us this week. So he's almost solely responsible for a lot of, you know, what we have to uh, consume. In regards yeah, to he's the reason stuff. that we have all this stuff, all the reissues so, and all the new information and the documentary and stuff like that. So very, very, very grateful for his contributions to our Cosmic Tape Music Club this week. Um you know, Absolutely. Any lingering questions anybody has, he's you know feel free to reach out um, on his post or just tag him um, if there's anything that came up for you in your research this week or anything that you're like, when's this getting reissued? He would know. Um, so this week we are turning the page, and you know we may circle back around to Raymond Scott again because there is so much to talk about. Uh, we could probably do it for a whole year. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but we're doing it week by week career. for now. Um, so week by week for now, and this week we are covering Delia Derbyshire, the prolific. Um, we've kind of, uh, you know, she's definitely been posted about in the group um, since our inception a few months ago. Right. <laughs> um, but Quite a few times. I mean, people, tons of people have posted about her. It feels you know. like... Uh, you know, similar to Raymond Scott, you know, upon her passing, there was a treasure trove of tapes and things to be archived and explored. And she had, you know, she's obviously having her resurgence now. Similar to Jomique as well. Yeah. And isn't that interesting that, like, yeah. when I guess it's almost uh, traditional, uh, you know, if you're a cosmic tape music artist, you're going to leave a little bin of tapes. I guess I teach us seems to be the I guess I should start putting mine together now. (laughs) Yeah, we need to get a teach us. Yeah, we need Um, to. Delia famously had hers in cereal boxes. Mm -hmm. Which I heard someone say was so fitting because her most famous piece, the Doctor Who theme of course, for anyone who doesn't know, or even if you do, it's just fun to talk about. Um, you know, came to people through their TVs, you know, while they're you know, at their dinner tables or breakfast tables, Saturday mornings, um, that sort of thing. So for her to have that tucked away in the cereal boxes um, seemed appropriate. Also, I appreciate her spirit for recycling. 
<laughs> Re- um, might as well reuse a cereal box instead right. of going to Reusing. the container store. Um, so, you know, also it was, you know, we discovered in some of our preliminary research, obviously we are going to all discover Delia Derbyshire together this week, either just enjoying things we already knew, sharing videos, sharing songs, sharing reissues, showing, you know, your personal collection. Um, but we obviously, you know, have done some preliminary research, um, and it was noted that, you know, when she left the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, she just never unpacked. You know, she brought all of her tapes and everything she had worked on and just never unpacked. So that's why there was such a trove of And she moved as far north to... as she could possibly go in yeah. England. She moved to the, the northest part of England. And I had mentioned this earlier. Mm-hmm. It almost seemed like when she left the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, um, it was almost as if her life was over. You know, she left in such an intense way um, and literally didn't unpack. And, you know, the stories of her life post, uh, you know, her leaving, you know, were, you know... Yeah, she didn't make music. She was reclusive. Mm -hmm. uh, Hardly anybody saw or heard from her. You know, like, she was just like... She did apparently make a lot of phone calls. I loved... There was an anecdote um, Mm -hmm. from a documentary on the BBC that we had not heard before called The Sculptress of Sound, Mm -hmm. um, where Mark Ayers was talking about... Mark Ayers was... uh, He's he's the most, um, I guess, active in... He's the archivist. Archival work. For the radiophonic... For BBC, or was. I don't know if he still is, but... So he um, said that she would call him and talk you know, for hours about things, and he would, you know, be lost for a while, not knowing what she was talking about. And then she would just hang up, and he wouldn't know, like, when it was going to end. And then, you know, months would go by, and then she would pick up the phone and just start where she left off. So apparently she kept notes by the phone. So anyone she talked to, she actually was notating what they talked about and where she was going to pick up. So when she called them again, she would just pick right up where she left off. And, which means, like, she didn't want to, like, revisit, you know, anything she had talked about before. It, she had no interest in that. It was also uh, evidence in when the um, the uh, Doctor Who soundtrack got revised. The theme song? Yeah. Later. They kept, they did it a few times. Yeah. They, they would, you know, every time a new producer would, would get on the project, they'd want to extend the song. At one point, they did a completely new one using the Delaware EMS, you know, monstrous synth just to see if they could do it, and she hated that. Like, basically, all of the um, revisions she absolutely hated. Like, she would have never, you know, done any revisions if it was up to her. So, you know, that spirit of, like, kind of never looking back or never going back or never talking about anything again, you know. She was very, very I think, intentional. So, you know, from, from my understanding, she spent, you know, a lot of time thinking about the work she was going to create and mapping it out so that when she made it, it was not to be messed with, you know. Mm-hmm. It was complete and not to be revisited, not to be tweaked, you know. I think as artists we feel, you know, you can get into this mode of like, when do I stop? When is this actually finished? And one of her contemporaries mentioned that she had that gift of knowing when something was finished. But I think it's because of the amount of planning that she would do ahead of time you know she would think about it she would imagine it she would map it out she would do these crazy you know mathematical calculations speaking of math like much uh many people would dare to say that she was more of a mathematician than she was a musician now you know obviously let me confirm that what her degree was um, it was mathematics and music music? yeah she had she double majored or something like that but uh what's interesting about that uh, concept is that it's very similar to a mathematician. You know, when you're done with the yeah. equation and you've decided on your final answer, it's done. You know, you turn that answer in, it's either right or wrong, mm. and that's it. It's very finite yeah. math. It's one of the reasons why I was terrible at it. <laughs> uh, because I... <I'd laughs> I'm like my my mind kind of goes off in the in these creative like you know I'm really into editing and revisions and, and consuming things over and over again you know so that is that's definitely not how I think um, you know but like I found that interesting that like even you know her uh, you know way of going about life and interacting with others 
seem to follow this very like mathematician's um, style. Yeah, that was part of her unique, you know, attributes, her unique talent. Um, that you know, it just seems like she had a mind that was very unique and kind of unparalleled. Un, uh, I guess unparalleled would be the right word. Unmatched. Um, yeah. yeah. So she got her degree. So you know, she's a real trailblazer. So we'll do like just a little brief, you know, chronological review, I guess. Yeah, let's take them through um, the story. But I have like sort of like more esoteric questions and thoughts about her and like why her work resonates still to this day. But um, you know, she was, let's see. Um, uh, well, she was one a of the, composer what, I for think the BBC. Four, yeah, well, I was going to go back a little bit earlier. <laughs> right, than right. I, I think just she was, was like one of, four, one of four or seven women that was accepted at Cambridge for mathematics and music. Um, and I don't know her exact birth date, but I know that um, she's from Coventry. I want to see Coventry, 1937. So there's this funny, there's a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but there are some interviews with her, some phone calls that have been recorded um, where she talks about, you know, growing up at Coventry was a place that was hit very hard in World War II. There was a major blitz there. Mm. Um, she had this funny saying that she brought up in one of the things that we heard, which was she's Coventry born, bred, and blitzed, which I mm. think speaks to, you know, what shaped her. And if you've seen The Delian Mode, which was a mini documentary that came out, I believe, in 2014, I have this wonderful article that I found about it. So I'm going to start there because I think, you know, for <coughs> us personally... Excuse me. <laughs> Brief moment here for coughing. Um, <laughs> Wrong too. For us, you know, we were aware of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. We were aware of what music it influenced, you know, sort of more in the present time. And um, the mystery around it. And some of the characters involved, like Delia. But it wasn't really until a little bit later, you know, 2013, 2014, when these documentaries started coming out and all of the releases of her archived music um, and sort of like appreciation societies that the information became more, I don't want to say mainstream, but just more available. Readily available, yeah. And the depth to which we can kind of wrap our heads around who this person was became so much easier. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this documentary for us. We saw it at its premiere, which I don't it's even LA think premiere. we were intent. That wasn't the intent. We were at a two-day uh, Finders Keepers sort of event in LA, uh, Finders Keepers Records, which we can link to as well. I'll find that the uh, historical data on the internet about that event. But um, it was hosted by Finders Keepers, and it was uh, they had brought Suzanne Chiani sort of out of Night obscurity. Night one was at a venue. It was more of a concert. And um, Andy Botel. And oh, wasn't Alessandro Bertini there? Doug. Yeah, he opened That's on the right. Brooklyn Music Easel like well before the Easel was re-released. So yeah, that was really this was exciting. a really pivotal Doug Shipton and Andy Botel DJed. And then uh, Suzanne Chiani played a audiovisual set. Uh, in conjunction with uh, Doug Shipton and Andy Botel. Mm -hmm. What was and, that trio called? Uh, they had their own little group name. They did have their own little group name. Can't remember right I'm now. I'm proud of myself <laughs> for remembering the two gentlemen. Yeah, so. good job. Um, um, but night two was at a movie theater, and Suzanne Shani performed this like alter ego character that she has that's sort of promoting uh, right. saving the environment. Yes. And she has all this music and she does this performance art. Do you remember that, what that was called? No, no I don't. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I either, but that was really I wasn't expecting us to go down this road, but I'll try to remember all this stuff throughout the week. Um, and then I think because Finders Keepers was involved with this mini documentary, they gave it its LA premiere. So it's about 15 minutes, I want to say, 15, 20 minutes. And it is sort of pulling together all the pieces that are out there, the documentaries, the phone calls, the information that we have about Delia. Yeah, we started it while we were watching little... dinner one night recently just to kind of brush up. And we, it was, it was over been... before we finished our dinner. And we were yeah. like, oh, wow, that's quick. Yeah, so this, this article is great because it goes over, you know, a little bit about her and as well about the documentary. And after her death, there were 267 reel-to-reel -reel tapes. 
and a box of a thousand pages of music and notes. Because she, like I said, she wrote things furiously. She wrote everything down. She did mathematical equations. She drew scores, you know, all that kind of stuff. A thousand pages of notes. And I, I don't know that anyone can ever really make that all make sense. Yeah. But having it is such a treasure. So I'm going to post Yes, Mike, you link. do need to see this documentary. It's very good. Yeah, so I'm going to post this article that links to the documentary just because it has such good information about the article. There's a few that we'll link to um, that are pretty much, I would say, mandatory for <laughs> being in this club. I, mean, I don't know. It's just so entertaining to us as well as informative and inspiring for our music-making processes. But To me, they're sort of like the legendary tales that I can hear over and over again. They kind of remind me of, like, you know, folklore. <laughs> yeah, I never get tired of it, and it just, every time we will you know, pull something up about her or the radiophonic workshop, we find something new that we're like, oh, that is so cool. I didn't, I missed that the first time or something like that. Right, so yeah. um, just to go back to just like a little overview of her life. Uh, she was born in Coventry, survived World War II, um, went to Cambridge. Like mom. My mom wasn't born in Coventry, but she did survive yes, World War II. she did survive the Blitz. Was in England. Um, so she was born in 37, survived the war. Uh, was one of, you know, a, a handful of women to be accepted into the mathematics program at Cambridge. She double majored in math and music. And when she got out of college, decided she wanted to be part of the recording industry. She wanted to be just involved in, you know, the, the process of making music from that side of things. Um, Which she knew was not going to be easy. Oh, this is a fun... I found this little thing on Wikipedia. She approached the careers office at the university and told them she was interested in sound, music, and acoustics, to which they recommended a career in either deaf, deaf aids or depth sounding. Um, it, so I don't think anybody knew what to do with her. They didn't know... They didn't... You know, there wasn't a place for women in these kinds of fields, and I don't think anyone could really grasp, you know, the way she thought and the way she saw the world. Um, she applied for a position at DECA Records, and they told her they do not employ women in their recording studios. The recording studio is no place for a woman, is what I've heard her say. They, she was told. Um, she took some positions at the UN in Geneva, teaching piano to the children of the British Consul General and mathematics to the children of Canadian and South American diplomats. Then she worked as an assistant. She was like a Mary Poppins type. In the International <laughs> Telecommunications Union. And then, so after her stint at the UN, she returned to Coventry and taught at a primary school in Coventry. And, you know, she's just kind of hopping around. So this is 1960 now. Um, she decides to go to London and she becomes an assistant in the promotion department of music publishers, Boozy and Hawks. Mm -hmm. And then, this is the real pivotal moment. In 1960, she joined the BBC as a trainee assistant studio manager. Finally got in the door. Which, she was working studio. on a magazine program where critics reviewed classical music recordings. Um, so that's, you know, she really had a way about talking about music, too, that's really different. And so she heard about this mysterious radiophonic workshop program at the BBC. While she was there. While she was working, working in a different it, department. You know, in the okay. classical music magazine department. Um... So she asked the, uh, the heads, the central program operation heads, that she wanted to work in the radiophonic workshop, and they said, what are you talking about? This doesn't exist. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't hire composers. We don't have this thing you are talking about. Mm. Um, and two years later, it took her they two years to they break admit in. To it. Somehow she got in. She got assigned to work in the Maida Vale Studios, which is where the BBC Radiophonic Workshop was housed. And that's where she was for 11 years. And she made music and sound for almost 200 radio and television programs. The rest is history kind of thing? Yeah. Ooh. There's so, so here's the thing. We want to spend all week talking about her and sharing clips and sounds and ideas and research because there is so much. And we don't want to just talk at you about it all during this conversation today because we could just do it for probably eight hours. We found out some new tie-ins with uh, a certain Island Records band and 
mentioned uh, band that preceded that, that I see the words on the page right now. Yeah, why don't you go into some of that? So, you know, she did make music for the BBC programs, wasn't credited for them because everything was credited to the Radiophonic Workshop, right? So BBC paid you to be an employee of BBC. You did the work they asked you to do. You weren't credited as a composer. So she was never credited for anything, never received any royalties or anything like that. But she would spend a lot of her off time doing other things. Uh, well, I believe uh, David Vorhouse, who was one of the, if not the founding member of White Noise, um, met her after a uh, workshop that she was delivering with, I believe, Brian Hodgson. Um, and they had formed a little group called uh, Unit Delta Plus. And I have looked for Unit Delta Plus recordings for years, always coming up with nothing. So if anybody knows of any any of those recordings, they exist, no, please. This is going to be one of our weekly assignments. Is please let me Unit know. I'm dying to hear Unit Delta Plus. But anyway, uh, I believe uh, Brian Hodgson and her joined up with David Borhouse and started making music um, together. And so... David Vorhaus didn't work at the radio, radiophonic workshop, but he would get, he would sort of sneak in. Right, because uh, they didn't have a studio to do this. To the Maida Vale studio. Yeah. Sounds like they, people were there around the clock. And would basically produce uh, that project. It was the Wild West. Um, with, with Delia. And I guess the first song that they did uh, was oh, Firebird. Wait. So Firebird was made under the auspices of Unit Delta Plus. Oh. Is that what you're saying? No. Oh, I lost you. I'm sorry. No, no. I'm talking about White Noise. Oh, David okay. Warhouse. So... Unit Delta Plus, we just don't know. They say that there's music, but we have we can't find it. Never and been able to find it. You switched over. To yeah, I said. Okay. Yeah, that you know, David Borhouse attended a workshop. Right, right. Sorry. And then he would sneak into the to yes, the Madeville right. Studios, and they were you know working on what became yeah, why not White Noises Electric Storm. One of and I'd say I top guess, five albums of all time for us. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to link to it. For a lot it. of bands that we probably... We've posted it quite a few times. It's pretty popular in the group, but... Still we, have it on, anyway. we have a reissue <laughs> on vinyl. It's it's a great album. Should I grab it? Uh, I don't know. No, okay. We need to show the physical <laughs> copy to people, but we do have it. If you don't um, believe us, you can comment. Um, <laughs> Last year was the 50th anniversary right. of the White Noise release, so I'm going to post this really cool 50th anniversary article from Sound on Sound. Which was released on Island Records, and, um, you know, they're known as sort of like one of the original um, indie labels, and um, I know they're most popular for, you know, having popularized reggae music, but... Um, yeah, this is a fun little fact. Chris Blackwell was known yeah. for finding, you know, artists in the nooks and crannies. And I believe that is definitely true with White Noise. Um, you know, so he saw something there. You know, he, he signed them. He allowed them to put out this record. And the first song they did, uh, I believe uh, David said that Delia and, and him wrote it together. Mm-hmm. Firebird. He did say that. Um, this article that I found says that um, two of the tracks on White Noise were created by Delia and Brian Hodgson, uh, Hodgson uh, working late into the night at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, Workshop Studio with David Warhouse, who has described Delia as his teacher. Mm. And Island Records took up the project and helped fund Warhouse's Kaleidophon Electronic Music Studio, where he continued to complete the album. So he got started probably because he needed a studio, mm-hmm. and Delia was his mentor and teacher, so she let him in. <laughs> and they wrote um, Firebird. Um, he did say that she did most of the sound design. Right. Yeah. He, that he, she, she didn't write the songs, but she did the sound creation. She did the tape stuff. Mm-hmm. And he played bass, I think, on that first song. Like, that was his contribution. Um, he's credited as the bass player hmm. of that record. And, Interesting. Um, but anyway, yeah, that was what she was doing on the side. So she actually helped to set up the Kaleidophon studio as well mm. in the late 60s. 
And I can understand what she saw in David because, you know, he's gone on to do, you know, some other white noise albums that are a lot more ambient, um, that are, that are cool. I don't think that, uh, Delia and Brian were involved in those. Um, Mm. but you know, he, he's, he's brilliant too, you know, and he was, he's, uh, you know, different kind of mind. People have posted, you know, his video where he's like interviewing with the BBC, like kind of showcasing the, the Kaleidophon. Uh, studio and I believe yeah, the Kaleidophon was his actual like instrument that he created that he used to con- it was like a voltage controlled like mm-hmm. upright bass looking thing with like yeah. tape as the I'll find that video as the input so it's been posted in the group but I'll grab like it. this like electromagnetic such a tape. funny video um you know he kind of looks like he's tripping balls he sure <laughs> does on the video like something's a little off there or on or on, will. I love it. Um, but yeah, um, it's, here's actually it's a Facebook video. It's got like a waistband. Oh, it's so funny. It almost looks like a joke or like a parody or satire or something, but it's legit. It's and it's cool. Legit. You know, it's like sometimes the funniest things actually make the coolest sounds. And I would also say that that video is a big, big influence on how sometimes we seem like a parody of ourselves. Yeah, so. <laughs> some aspects of. We try to take... vibe can come off comical, I think. Yeah, we try to be, you know, silly in with the serious, if you will. Yeah, can't take yourself too seriously. So that um, that link that I just posted is the David Borjas Kaleidophon extravaganza. Um, and I posted the White Noise, Electric Storm, Sound on Sound article. There's, again, like we said, Mike so agrees much. that he seems like he's on acid, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> if you've seen this video, you know what we're talking about. Um, it's interesting, you know, she, it was, you know, talked about that her, you know, her assignments for TV stuff for BBC, um, you know, she obviously did work that was revered, but yes, (laughs) um, but her work in radio, which was still a major media form at the time. You know, it's have to like remember that the radio was the main source of entertainment for decades. Um, it sort of just disappeared. <laughs> um, Some people never transitioned to TV. Like yeah, like radio were, dramas. And there was a whole generation of people that like they were like, hey, watching that crazy, yeah, idiot box. But she was given more freedom on the radio stuff, so she did more independent work, and she has sort of a. I'd say more abstract and very kind of deeply emotional work that I've been finding from her radio uh, compositions. Um, There's something about the way that she can evoke the uh, sense of mood, I guess, um, from what people are talking about. So if someone's telling a story or being interviewed, there's just very, very powerful, like that subtle, bit but powerful. From the Delian mode where they talk about, or was that that other documentary they listened to this yeah, morning? It all runs together where does. they talk. There's they, a lot of the same bits in, in these different documentaries. She does a soundtrack to people talking about what it's like to be getting older. To have Alzheimer's. And have Alzheimer's and like, you know, kind of forget what they're doing. Actually, <laughs> it's it's like, kind of heavy, but... You it's, know, yeah, but the way she does it, it sort of transports you and makes you feel what they're saying you know it's like she's able to trans i had a deep sense of empathy yeah like the way that she can take the sound and make it mean something that matches what it's so hard to talk about i'm sorry and then um (laughs) i'm gonna find this sculpture whoever was being interviewed i think it might have been brian hodgson actually was saying that she he believes that you know she was actually like repeat you know having some of the people that were being interviewed repeating yes. phrases like she would she, she would put com- it back yeah. in there and it was almost like a call and response kind of a like song uh, thing. yeah she like had she- a lot of freedom and so this documentary this was it's an hour long it's BBC uh, sound only funny enough um, and that was one I hadn't heard before that I thought was really cool it's an interview of you know all these guys that she worked with 
at the Radiophonic Workshop and Mark Ayers. Mark Ayers. And they have such a personal way of talking about her, like so such endearment. Well, they all you know, I guess, you know, like well. a lot of the like, oh, I'm talking, you know, somebody who's researched her or done the archiving or whatever, but these men who actually worked with her, who have such a fondness for her mm-hmm. and got to, you know, understand her sense of humor and things like that. And apparently you would have honestly had to have worked with her to get to know her. Like she wasn't a very She wasn't social. She wasn't social. Her so work was her life. Probably the yeah. only people that could speak, you know, to that effect were, were the people that she worked in day in, day out, that were sort of like forced to be around her, so to speak. Yeah, apparently she was quite unpredictable. Uh, moody. Moody. Would fall in and out of love with her work. Yeah, if she was excited or she had like, kind of caught on to an idea, she would just obsessively work on it. And then some days she just like wouldn't be able to work on anything or talk she, to anyone. She, they'd ask her about certain projects and she'd be like, mm-hmm. what? I'm not even, no. I heard her describe deadlines as something that she would just, she would work really furiously on an idea. And then as she saw the deadline approaching, she would slow down almost as though time was stopping. Mm-hmm. She couldn't handle deadlines. She couldn't handle sort of the way that the BBC would say, oh, tweak this or tweak that or change this here. Revisions, or, yeah, she hated them. She's like, why would you want me to do that? She's such an artist. Very confident, too. Very confident in... Her decisions. In what she was doing and she why she was doing it and, you know, standing up for herself and standing behind her work. Uh, I would love to see anybody post their favorite uh, Delia songs. Um in the comments of this post, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and you know, throughout the week, obviously. Um, but maybe not as individual posts, just because. Yeah, do like a thread. I'll yeah, we can do a thread on start a thread. The music. Yeah. Specifically, um, now is it true that there was a concert set up for Unit Delta Plus? It is, and it famously. Uh, didn't happen. It was. It didn't happen, or it was reviewed poorly. Uh, it was. It didn't happen. There's rumors that it didn't happen. If mm. I get, if I know, if I have the story straight, mm. that like it was all set up and ready to go, and then they just didn't do it. There was a vibe that apparently wasn't vibing with Delia. Like she felt she quit. Like At, after it this might have been concert. that she had yeah, it, but the I think the rumor has it is that the, the she never played like that they never played, like the concert never actually happened. I think so. We need to research this, guys. This is something we need to dig into with the Unit Delta Plus because I remember there was a documentary I watched with Peter Sinovia mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about this specifically. So we need to do some crossover research um, since Unit Delta Plus is so, Brian so. Hodgson and Peter Zinoviev, who's the founder of EMS. Um, she's obviously been, you know, swimming in all these different streams, um, which, you know, if you just know that she did the Doctor Who theme, it's not as obvious that she was doing all this other stuff. Um, I really want to know, the did this concert happen? <laughs> was it poorly reviewed? Did it not happen? Did she really quit the group after this? Did she quit making music after this. I know, she, I, I thought I remembered that she either didn't like the way that they were setting up for this concert or didn't like that she was being treated poorly or something, something. There's she something wasn't there. vibing and, and it may have not ever happened, but it, she definitely like <laughs> dissolved Unit Delta Plus after it. Um, and I think that was right around the time that she began working with David Vorhouse. So it was kind of like, yeah. Um, so like 66, 67 is unit Delta plus, And then 68 is her David Vorhouse years. Um, she also, you know, did some work scoring, um, for a production, a production of Shakespeare. She didn't. I, I don't know, know if it was the first electronic score for a play like this. I didn't know. Um, but this is new to me, so I want to look more into this this week as well. Is her electronic score for Shakespeare? And you know, was this the first? You know, what was it like? Is there a recording of it somewhere? Yeah, I would love to hear that. Um, I'd love to. <laughs> 
see that, but definitely hear it. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot that we already know. And then it's like, as you keep digging, you're like, wait, what, what is true? What is real? What's the real story here? Will we ever know? And there is a archive at, I want to say the University of Manchester. Uh, Daily Derbyshire Archive, where I believe uh, Mark Ayers was the one to kind of scoop up all of her tapes that were left behind. We definitely said that Brian went through them first. That's right. He sorted out the stuff that was blank, the stuff that was just noise or feedback. And who knows, he might have kept a few gems for himself. Mm. The secret, secret Delia Derbyshire tapes. Mm -hmm. um, the archive is... Let's find out. And there's also, I, I don't know if, I didn't want to steal your thunder, but there's since developed a, a Delia uh, Derbyshire day, right? Yes, that, that was going to be a lead-in, perfect timing. Um, which I want to say started in 2018. And who puts that on? That's a great question. Oh, okay. We need to find out more about Delia Derbyshire day. Yeah, I mean, I, I... Oh, here we go. I've got an article that I pulled up. So Manchester honors the woman behind the pioneering music of Doctor Who. This is, uh, the I think maybe the first Delia Derbyshire Day, or maybe they're just promoting the one that happened. That this happened year. maybe like in 2014 or something. Mm, I, I think much later than that. Much later than that. Okay, yeah, I've been following um, it since the beginning. I know that much, and I've been very sad to never be able to attend it because I'm not. I in can't English. see what year this article is from. It's saying. But oh yeah, you're right. 2013 was the first one. 2013. First time she'd been celebrated. Yeah, I remember um, when that rolled out. Yeah, so they showed the dealing mode. So that was probably the premiere of the dealing mode in the UK. Gotcha. In 2013. And you know, I think. Um, and they did a panel discussion. They did the She's concert premiere of three specially commissioned works by the Delia Darlings. Who are the Delia Darlings? Let's find that out. I have no idea who the Delia Darling, uh, Delia. Yeah, and they had some of the archive material was there as well. Darlings, Delia Darlings. Yeah, they must be like cover. Well, the, the link is dead, so I can't click four, to four. it. But the Delia Darlings apparently were maybe a Delia cover group or something whoa that's crazy i mean she's like influenced people like apex twin and paul hartnell of orbital and all yeah, these electronic so music artists adrian utley you know from it Portishead. seems like the um the release of some of her archive material that was played on the bbc i want to say like around 2007 2008 um really shocked a lot of people in the electronic music world because they maybe knew about her and her tape music work and her work for the BBC, but didn't know like that she kept innovating to um, create what they're considering sort of like proto-dance music. Yeah, they didn't understand that what some of the stuff that she was experimenting with was very similar to like modern. People didn't believe it. They said, this is new music. This is not Delia's work. Dance music. You're lying. This uh, isn't real. Genres, yeah, like techno and house and stuff. But yeah, she she's kind of unofficially maybe the pioneer of that genre. Yeah, Manchester University has all of her stuff. So the, uh, the, the archivist there said that when they received the tapes, they had to immediately digitize them because... They were probably falling apart. You know, every time you play them, they deteriorate. Mm -hmm. And probably had to bake in them. order to like listen to them over and over and kind of figure out what was there, they had to immediately digitize them and very carefully uh, handle them. But The oxide was probably falling off. So I don't know if the physical the tape <laughs> uh, tapes are still like around or just the digital versions of them. Um, but I would say, you know, the focus of her sound and her creations was using mm, yeah. everyday objects. Right. Um, Found or, sounds, as she would call yeah, them. Yeah, everyday objects or uh, tone generators 
to then... At their most basic level, like we're talking a sine wave, you know, just building sine waves. Uh, and recording those sounds to tape, um, pitching them up, pitching them down. Using tape speed, uh, recording them to a second tape deck. I was going to say... And then cutting the pieces to time using her mathematical mind. Yeah, she kind of developed these methods herself. Well, that was something we talked about. I was like, who developed, like, the idea, mm -hmm. like, you know, obviously when she joined, they were already using multiple tape machines, and she was, like, at least loosely taught, like, hey, we record sound to tape, we chop it up, we, we put it together, it makes a song. You know, who developed that? And yeah. we kind of came to the conclusion that it might have been Daphne Orem, and um, the founder of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The other gentleman that we didn't know his name. Yeah, who who is that guy? We'll look it up <laughs> right now because we can and we will. We but, like to get things correct. But yeah, so there's this idea. You know, I thought about you know her Desmond method. Frisco. Desmond Briscoe. So it was Desmond. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned it might have been him, but it was definitely him. Um, so manipulating tape and test oscillators. That was Daphne and Desmond's bread and butter. And if you witness, if like, there's a few of the documentaries that kind of break down uh, some of her more popular pieces, like into the three parts, you know, because there yeah, was three that was tape really machines, cool to hear. three parts. And what you kind of notice is that, you know, the sounds are layered. It's almost as if she thought about sound the same way like people would think about using like Photoshop, but using tape. Like her sound design methods were always like, okay, I'm going to start with this and then I'm going to emphasize the higher frequencies using, you know, this other, you know, sound or, you know, other sound source or I'm going to pitch up the thing, you know, in certain sections to emphasize or I'm going to emphasize the low end on like the one and the three or whatever, you know what I mean? So she would she would build these sounds up and, and a lot of the, she might only focus on say rhythm and melody, you know, just the two most simple elements of, of making a song, but she would sort of like layer the sounds to where there were, it provided emphasis, you know, on certain beats, on certain notes. Um, so it sounded a lot more uh, full. And I just think that's a really cool uh, concept that's oftentimes overlooked. It's like, you don't need, you know, like your Brian Wilson uh, type, like, you know. <laughs> that has its place, but that's not it what it's It has its was. place, but you don't, you don't, on every song, you don't need like, you know, this like, you know, five, six part harmony or whatever. And She was able to do a lot with a minimal amount, right? Less is more, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, she knew where to place the emphasis and what to use. Like I said, she was super intentional. She pre-planned everything. Yeah, so she, which we've heard over and over again the wall. is the way to, to do, you know, if there's anything I've gleaned from like some of the artists that we've you know done deep dives on, it's you envision what you want to happen first and then you make it happen. It's very simple. It's, yeah, it sounds simple. It's not all that easy, you know, to, to actually put into practice. But, you know, that I am 100% sure about. That is the way to go. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Um, so I think we've collected quite a few questions that we have. Um, some things we're going to be looking into more and some of the prompts that we'll have for the week about Delia and the things that we've uncovered in this conversation. You know, a lot of these things we just discovered as we're talking together here today. And then we'll post in the group throughout the week some of the things that we want to explore more together and see what we can find out. Um, if Delia Derbyshire is something you've never heard before, um, if it's completely new to you, that is so exciting. I almost wish I could go back and like rediscover it all again. You know? I know. Yeah. So we'll be rediscovering it through your eyes um, and your experience of being exposed to this. If you are more knowledgeable about her, please, you know, act as a mentor in the group to the rest of us um, to share what you know and what you've experienced. Um, if you have personal connection to, you know, maybe you know, hearing the Doctor Who theme as a child or 
you know, being exposed to her work and having some, you know, sort of nostalgic feelings about it. Um, we'd or if love you've to attended a, a Delia Derbyshire Day mm-hmm. uh, event or have any experiences or pictures. Yeah, your own personal experience with it um, is very valuable to yeah. our research as well. Did we find out who puts that on? Mm, yeah, let's look into Delia Derbyshire Day. The other thing that I did find is that the Coventry Music Museum is now a thing that exists mm. and also has a permanent display of her sort of you know, it's kind She's of probably the statue simplistic. Out front, I would say. Um, yeah. Apparently, like she hadn't really been celebrated much by her hometown until recently. Mm. So I'm going to post a link to the Coventry Music Museum. Music? Did I say that right? Music. Well, you know, like, yeah. Everybody's know got their instrument, weird. you know, and I would say that hers is probably either the tape machine or the lampshade, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Her Lucille, you know, like the guitar that B.B. King is known, Mm. you know, is a lampshade. (laughs) So, um, it might also be fun. I might post this later, though. I found, um, like, on TripAdvisor, people writing reviews about the Coventry Music Museum. They're, like, super detailed, and (laughs) it's really, really fun to read. Oh, man. I would love to go to that next time we go to England, if we ever... Yeah. Haven't been to Coventry. Yeah, I've never been to Coventry. Um, so, uh, what were we saying? Uh, Delia Derbyshire Day. Delia Derbyshire. I, I don't know why I keep avoiding that for some reason. Maybe you because don't I care. Am, no, it's because I wish I could go. I'm sad that I haven't been. <laughs> yeah, I also too. want to touch on, you know, sort of as we close here, I'd say the last chapter of her life was the synthesizer sort of infiltrating the radiophonic workshop. Well, that's what made her, like, out. Yeah, so that's sort of the final chapter of her. The synthesizer came around and she was kind of like, uh, I like creating what this thing can do with found sounds and tape, thank you very much. And now that this exists, A, everyone's going to think that it can do what I'm doing with tape, but it really can't. Like if you like listen in between the partials of the sound, like, you know, it's much deeper than what a synthesizer can pull off uh, without any treatment. Mm, but it has this perception of being the same thing. It's, there's something I don't think about, she could handle that. She talked a lot about the handmade aspect, making everything with her own hands, and the quality that that creates. I'm not sure that's the word I was going for, but the quality of the tone, the quality of the sound, and the, the feeling that is generated from something that is handmade versus... Well, the imperfections... Programmed or quantized, yeah. Yeah, the imperfections provided that sort of, like, humanizer, you know, mm-hmm. effect, um, you know, automatically. And I mentioned earlier when we were talking about this, it's sort of like if the sculpture David mm-hmm. was made from a 3D printer versus chiseled by hand. Right. I think would be a good comparison to, you know, what I've heard her describe, her feelings about uh, the synthesizer versus tape manipulation right and uh, you know honestly like and compared to digital it's like even on a whole different plane yeah. of existence because you know we believe that when a sound is recorded to tape it sort of takes on a magic of its own you know and so like she's actually taking the the sound recording it to tape and then and then you know actually piecing the tape together so it's it's literally all handmade all tape you know that's just got a sound Fantastic, and I think they were working with, uh, you know, for for the tape machine nerds. I think they were working with like one inch tape. Mm. Uh, like wow, like well, they had mono one inch of... tape or something like that. So it was like very high fidelity. Hi, Daryl. We're so glad that you joined us and that you love Delia and that we can get deeper on her. Um, very very excited to have you in the group and joining us. And also I see Mike saying that he is excited to uh, dig deeper with us as well this week. So seems like we've struck on something that we're all, as you can tell, we're pretty, pretty amped about this. Well, Tuesday this we'll topic. be <laughs> improvising uh, with our electronic instruments in the style, you know, of what we perceive, you know, of her music. You know, we won't be splicing tape uh, that <laughs> We day. might involve some tape loops. But, so. 
you know, kind of like our whole, uh, you know, deal with the improvisation is like, you know, we have a setup that helps us kind of emulate Mm-hmm. the tones you, that you hear in this type of music, we're not by any means recreating it using the same process. No, because, yeah, to play it's a, it's completely something live, it sort of evokes the technique, it evokes the feeling and the sounds, um, and touches on those things in some ways, like with using delay pedals or uh, loopers, loopers yeah. um, or even like your cassette synthesizer. You know, there are certain things that kind of lean into it a little bit more, but it's more the idea of how those things were created and the style. So we'll be doing a live improvised performance in, you know, inspired by Delia and her sounds um, and her attitude for life um, on Tuesday. And all throughout the week, we'll be posting, you know, prompts and thoughts and questions. Tuesday at 6? Tuesday at 6. Yeah. Eastern Standard Time. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. And so we look forward to connecting with everyone more on this. We're very, very excited about this topic. This is obviously something near and dear to our hearts and our creative process. Um, And it sounds like some of you out there feel the same. So this should be a fun week. Um, I think I just posted to the Delia Derbyshire Day website which has a wealth of knowledge. Um, so is there an organization that... That, like, started it? It looks like they do workshops, they have events. Um, so is it just Delia, Delia Derbyshire Day is an organization? I think so, yeah. Gotcha. It is the organization. It is the organization, I see. Um, and they have funding from, you know, some All councils these and other things. Organizations. They're actually. probably more active. I see them more on like Instagram and things like that. Um, but they have some cool stuff. There's a Delia Fonica game that they have. I'm gonna pull that up real quick. Um, oh wow! This is so cool. There are many attempts. I, I know we are. Did we post that link the, from the mm, BBC that no, like kind of simulates? That? Yeah. Um, There's this really cool simulator that some people were having trouble using. Because they needed like some special internet technology or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. It pulled up for us. I would think if you're in the UK, it would be more. I had it pulled up. Oh, here it is. Yeah. This is it? Yeah. Mm, cool. So. so, this is a really cool thing you can actually play with. It's interactive to make sort of pretend like you're doing tape manipulation. I'm going to try not to send this to my mom. <laughs> this will be the first episode we haven't involved your mother by accident. <laughs> If you'd pull this off. Oh, no, I almost gravitated <laughs> toward it instantly. For some reason, I love, like, sending my mom links to the stuff that we cover in this group. Um, it's almost she, like subconsciously she never bets I, an eye, I want her to... Sometimes it's pretty weird. ...to check some of this pretty stuff weird out. stuff. She's got a Delia Derbyshire uh, spirit about her as well. I well, think anyone they were born who survived the Blitz. Around the same time in England that, you know, she remembers uh, dodging... Uh, she has, <laughs> yeah, she has shrapnel still in her arm. Bombs, you know. She tells this story about, you know, being put in a uh, drawer, like a dresser drawer, um, to, to avoid the, the bomb stuff. And she still got the shrapnel. I didn't get that link because I, my message thing wasn't open. Oh, okay. So we'll try one more time, but, you know, if you haven't seen this in the group already, um, let's see who has posted. It probably went to the wrong source or whatever. Yeah, I have a problem with this thing. But, oh, right, I have to say hello to you first. Hold, please, while we have technical issues. (laughs) Or I can share it to you. Um, There's a million ways to do this stuff. I just, you should have it now. Um, By the way, this is, in case you can't tell, this is a live show. Yeah. (laughs) We like to make it interesting by going live. All right, let me grab this and share it with you guys in the thread. Um, Don't know why it's opening here. You are about to be amazed. Yeah, so the thing that we're posting right now actually allows you to simulate using web audio technology. Um, you know, you can actually simulate the three tape machines playing like a section of one of her pieces and you can adjust the tape speed and it like, you know, changes the pitch and everything. So it's super nerdy, super cool. 
I had fun with it for about an hour. Um, <laughs> so definitely check that out. Yeah, she's she is beloved. So let's uh, let's give her a week of love and um, discovery together to uh, to honor her. Yeah, it was hard to the, avoid the honor she did not receive in her living days. It was hard to avoid not doing the deep dive on her like first in this new series. Yeah, I kind of was treading lightly around it because I was like, I I really want to get this right. Right. When we talk about her. Yeah, we needed like an extra so, week so, of, so influential. of uh, deep diving on mm -hmm. resources. Mm -hmm. So this should be a fun week. And we still um, barely scratched the surface. but Yeah, we'll see. Let's see how deep we can get this week, guys. Um, Let's get deep. And <laughs> learn as much as we can and, and get as inspired as we can. And we're excited to see what everybody uncovers and what we learn. So if something's new to you, shout it out, let us know. Yeah, it's love fun. to hear. It's you know, anybody's stories about discovering her or you know, anything Delia Derbyshire related, definitely want to hear about it. Any closing thoughts? Um, no. I think, we, I think we did it, guys. I think we officially uh, nailed our cosmic conversation on Delia Derbyshire. And we have a lot of fun things we are going to be sharing throughout the week that I'm really excited about. So we'll see you in the group this week. And we'll see you on Tuesday for our live Delia-inspired improv performance. And at some point, we'll, no probably, we'll probably cover everybody who is involved in the Radiophonic Workshop at some point during this Yeah, it experience. felt right to start with Delia, though. Yeah, because it's just a treasure trove of amazing tape artists um you know but as you know they are definitely not the only ones yeah so we'll uh, be tying all those threads together as well i'm sure so stay tuned yeah stay tuned stay cosmic have a great week we will be talking to you soon all right folks we're on to the personal music section and the first track is from logan mccurter it's off the album primitive baptist and the oldest time traveler in the world and the track is called primitive baptist
Well, that was nice, wasn't it? I uh, love the synth sonics on that one. Uh, this next track is from group member Michael Vallone. Uh, the band is The Terra Experiment, and the album is Sensory Deprivation and Mind Control. The track is Further. Thanks for listening, folks. What a wonderful episode. If you haven't already, sign up for the Facebook group, Cosmic Tape Music Club, uh, where you'll find out more information about this podcast and more from the Galaxy Electric. For now, signing off. 